0: Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Heavenly Father, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And above all else, Lord Jesus, set our hearts on fire with a love for you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Please have a seat, and if uh, you have your Bibles with you, open up to John chapter 19. We're going to be in John 19, starting at verse 23. So we are in the season of Lent which is the season of preparation for Holy Week, for Good Friday, when we remember the crucifixion of Christ, and of course for, for, uh, for Easter itself, when we give glorious praise for His resurrection. And so, of course, this is very evident in our services, that, are, that, are, that our liturgy is a little different, even our processions are a little different. And over the course of the last few weeks, and continuing out through Lent, we are in a sermon series where we are leaning in closely to the cross, because we have seven recorded statements that Jesus uttered while he was actually hanging on the cross itself, traditionally called the seven last words or phrases of Christ. And so we are on the, we're on the third of these, uh, of these phrases this week, where we're going to uh, hear a heavy word today um, as Jesus addresses his mother. But the cross is the center of Christianity, it's the center of our faith as Christians. When Paul summarized the Christian faith in First Corinthians 15. He said, I delivered to you as of, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to many. So at the, at the very core of our faith is the death of our Savior on a cross. When you look at the substance and the subject of the apostles teaching after they were carrying on the message of Christ and spreading the word of the gospel to the ends of the earth, you don't hear them repeat the Sermon on the Mount. It's not Jesus's teaching that they are primarily teaching. It's always his death and resurrection. Now, his teaching is very important, and the Sermon on the Mount is very important. We don't reject those things, but at its very essence, the Christian faith is about the death of Jesus Christ on behalf of us who are sinners, and that through faith in him, new life is given to us. So when we take this time over Lent, it's a difficult, it's a difficult few weeks for us to really spend time at the foot of the cross, because the cross. Is horrific. It's an instrument of torture and execution, is what this is. And oftentimes we, we are so um, we are inundated with images of the cross. We wear them around our neck, we have them on shirts, they're on the wall, they're everywhere, that that we we forget just how awful the cross really was. And so, although these weeks and this series that we are in together is difficult, it's an important work for us. And so let's look more deeply today into some of the details of, of the moment that Jesus was hanging on the cross. So look at John 19 verse 23. This is going to lead up to our, our phrase today, our word today from Jesus. It says this, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, so they'd hung him on the cross, he's hanging now um, from the cross, they took his garments. It was traditional to, uh, to crucify people naked partly for the shame and the vulnerability of it. Also, um, what would happen is that the, the soldiers, it says here, uh, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier and also his tunic. So this, uh, w- what you have is the basic unit of the Roman army was what was called a contubernium, which was a group of eight soldiers. They shared a tent together, kind of a squad. Um, and sometimes those eight soldiers would be divided in two, and four of them would be given a special duty like execution duty. And so there are four Roman soldiers here, but Jesus would have had on five pieces of clothing, a belt, his sandals, a turban, his outer cloak, and his undergarment or tunic, as it says in, uh, in the uh, ESV version that we are reading here. So there's five pieces of clothing, four soldiers, and so they decide that instead of ripping his tunic, his undergarment. It was, it was seamless, so it wasn't patched together. It must have been pretty nice. It was one garment from top to bottom. Instead of tearing it, they decided to cast lots for it, to roll dice, to gamble for it, to see who would get it. So he, here's the thing. There's a lot going on at the cross, and not every, every single individual detail is recorded. Why worry about his clothes? Why does the Gospel of John take the time to tell us that they were gambling for his clothes? Why does it matter? So there's a, there's a few things that we, that we can understand from this important detail of Jesus on the cross. First of all, John tells us that this, the reason this is happening is in fulfillment of the Scripture. Okay, And, and he quotes from Psalm 22. So in verse 24, it says, So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided by garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. That's a reference to Psalm twenty-two eighteen 18 that says that. It says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So one of the things that we see here is that, uh, as we have stressed the last couple of weeks, and will continue to as well, that the cross is no accident. That the cross was not something that the Romans and the Jewish authorities did and that God adapted to. This was God's plan from the beginning, that even hundreds and thousands of years before this, there were words written that are, that are foretelling that this is going to happen. The work of the cross is an intentional work of God for the redemption of the world. That He knew our sin, knew our needs, knew that we could not save ourselves, and knew that the only thing that could save us was His death and resurrection. The cross is not something that happened to Christ, but something Christ did out of obedience for God and out of love for us. We see here as well that this undergarment—it's—it's uh, it's, uh, the the word is actually ketone, C-H-I-T-O-N is what it's called. It's translated tunic. Some scholars and theologians liken this as, uh, as that this kind of harkens back to the clothes that the high priest would wear when he would enter into the Holy of Holies, the central part of the temple, once a year to make an atoning sacrifice on behalf of all the people. And in the Old Testament, the, the, the clothes that that high priest would wear were laid out very specifically, Specifically, and there are some uh, there are some uh, aspects of what Jesus was wearing and the high priest are wearing that uh, that parallel one another. And so, some would say that this is that this shows that Jesus is our high priest who is making one sacrifice for all. You've heard the phrase "once and for all." That comes from the scripture that Jesus died once for all people. And so. Other scholars say, no, that's a bit of a stretch. But what, one of the things that is definitely true is that in the Old Testament, we see that when, when the garment is torn, particularly of a prophet, when they would tear their robes, it was a sign of grief and mourning, but also specifically a sign of disunity. Well, the, the, one of the most specific examples of this, you can see in King's when the prophet Aijah comes to King Jeroboam and he takes his, his, his tunic, his ketone, uh, and he rips it into 12 pieces. And then he gives 10 of them to the king, and he keeps two of them, and he says, this is what's going to happen. There's 12 tribes of Israel that all make up the the country of Israel. Well, it's going to be split. There will be a divided kingdom with 10 tribes and two tribes. And so we see the the dividing of the the ketone or the tunic is a sign of of brokenness and separation. And so we see here in Jesus' garment unity. We see the togetherness of God's people. We see that it is God who is doing the grief and the mourning over us, not even us who recognize that we need to be doing the grief and mourning of our own sin. That's what Jesus said the first week. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Thirdly, what we see in this moment, and this is where we start to see very personally, those first points are kind of theological. This one starts to get very personal we start to see the complete and utter sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus created everything and sustains everything, and he lost everything on the cross. Everything. He gave up everything in heaven, no riches, no glorious praise. Even the clothes on his back, he couldn't, he didn't control where they went. He was naked and vulnerable and the subject of scorn and shame. The completeness of the sacrifice of Jesus. It's easy easy to say, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That's a a very clean statement. But the cross was not clean. And, And Oftentimes you'll see paintings of Jesus on the cross and he's way up in the sky, 10, 15 feet in the air it looks like, and all the people are way below him. It's really hard actually to lift up and sustain a full-grown man on, on some pieces of wood hastily put together that high up off the ground. He was most likely not that high. He was about this high. All he needed to be was this far off the ground. And so he was very, very close. And so the people that are there could have seen every drop of blood, every tear, every bruise that was oozing, every hair on his chest that was matted, and there he was, beaten, bloody, naked in front of the people. Jesus' sacrifice was utterly complete. And astoundingly, friends, Paul would later tell us that this is the same attitude that we should have as Christians. He says this in Philippians chapter two, have this mind among yourselves or put on the mind of Christ or share this attitude of Christ who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Out of his obedience to God, out of his love for us, he bore the shame of the cross in the form of a servant. And this is what we are called to. This is what we are called to, to serve others, to love others, to bless others, even at cost and pain to ourselves. That as we look upon our God who was hanging on the cross and we look to be like him, we are called to pick up our cross, to die to ourselves, and to follow him. That it's easy to turn our Christianity simply into, I have a life that I want to lead, and God should be in means to an end for the glory of my own life. And so I'm asking God to bless the things that I'm doing, and then if he doesn't bless the things that I'm doing, then I have right to get mad at him and reject him. But instead, what we are called to as Christians is to be so cut to the heart by the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are to put off our own glory, For the sake of others, for the love of others, for the glory of Jesus. And that in doing so is where we actually find our true life. That we find that the things that we were chasing after before were actually deceitful and lies. And weren't giving the life that we thought that they were going to give. But that we find our true life in the humble and bloody Christ on the cross. And through his sacrifice, then God raised him up and exalted him to his right hand. And just as Jesus himself found life in death and resurrection, so too are we called to die to sin and find resurrection in Christ. How can we possibly have this attitude, though, when we're surrounded by a culture that, is, that at every turn is telling you to gain glory for yourself by cutting down others, by gathering things, by getting status, by demanding your own respect? We need a God who will transform our very hearts and minds to shape and form the desires of our hearts. This is our call during the season of Lent. God, prepare our hearts, change our hearts, renew our ways of thinking so that we see the world differently the way that you see it. But these things of seeing things differently, of our sins being forgiven, again, can feel distant and can feel theological and can feel conceptual. And that's where, again, the cross is so important to look at the reality of the cross, not just the concept of the cross, but the reality of the cross, the bloody Christ hanging on the cross. And one of the things that is... that is. Truly heart-wrenching about this moment that we see recorded in the Scriptures is that the intimacy of the cross, the, the excruciating nature of the cross, the anguish of the cross, and as Jesus hangs there, his mother is at his feet. Verse 25, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, Mary, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his home. I mean, first of all, get this out of the way. Um, we We don't speak the same way now. Any sentence that usually begins woman, comma, doesn't end well. Okay? Um, uh, this is a, uh, this, this, if you take nothing else from this sermon, um, guys, this isn't how we speak when we go home. If I said to Karen, woman, anything else I have to say does not matter because I began the sentence poorly, right? Uh, this, this is not, we can't read this with a 21st century ear. That's not Jesus was not speaking down to or pejoratively to his mother. Um, hear this as dear woman. It's a sign of, it's a, it's a term of endearment or respect. It's the same thing he said to her at the wedding of Cana when he turned the water into wine and she came to him and he said, woman, why does this concern me? He's saying, dear woman, why? Right? So let's get that out of the way. First of all, don't hear Jesus speaking down to his mother. In fact, what we can see here, the reality of the cross, if it's hard to imagine the depth of the pain that Christ is going through, we see here the depth of the pain in his mother. A mother who is watching her child to be executed. And an innocent child at that. Hers were the hands who changed his diapers, who tended to his skin knees, Her breasts nursed him. She tucked him in at night. Perhaps one of her memories, too, is what we see recorded in Luke chapter 2 when they took Jesus to the temple and Joseph was there and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, it says in Luke 2. And the prophet Simeon blessed them and then looks at Mary and says to her, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And he says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Perhaps these words are ringing in Mary's ear. As her son is pierced and so is her own soul pierced. This garment that the Roman soldiers are casting lots for is traditionally made by the Jewish man's mother and given to him when he is ready to be on his own. And tradition says that Mary made this for Jesus. And even that now she sees in a bloody pile being gambled away by soldiers, surrounded by scoffers and people spitting and throwing things at her son. And even now we see Mary, by the lack of description of what she does, We see her fate because she didn't lash out. Just like Mary, who we met 33 years before this, when she was about 14 or 15 years old, most likely. And an angel came to her and said, The Holy Spirit's gonna come upon you and you're gonna bear a child. And his name's gonna be Jesus. And he's gonna be the Christ, the Messiah. And she responded in deep, profound faith that shakes us even to today, where this young teenager looks at this angel and says, let it be to me as you have said. Okay? If this is what God wants from me, then this is where I'm going to go. And now here she is, now 47 years old, at the foot of the cross, watching her son being executed with a sword piercing her own soul. Can you imagine her anguish and parents perhaps you can relate that some of the times that we are most tempted to curse God is when something is threatening our children we live in a fallen and broken world and so if you are a parent things will happen to your children you cannot protect them enough um, so that nothing bad will ever happen to your child God knows this more than anyone else. For it's the sinful world that killed his son. But God has promised to be with us through it. And in what we see here in this intimate picture of Mary at the cross is that God knows our pain. That if you are a parent, that, that he knows the depth of our pain when we struggle. When we, when we are in anguish to the point of seeing sickness in our children or miscarriages or death of our children, that it's easy at that point to see it as perhaps God has abandoned me. And when we are in those places, the lowest of low, we can understand that God has not abandoned us any more than he abandoned Mary when Jesus looked at her in this moment and speaks to her to encourage her and to love her and to make sure that she is seen in her pain. And when we struggle, perhaps you're struggling to have kids. Perhaps you want to have kids and you can't. Perhaps, uh, perhaps you have lost children. Perhaps you have suffered miscarriages and, and there's an emptiness and a, and a hollowing out. And God has promised to be with us in that. He has not abandoned you. I remember when Karen was pregnant with Silas, and it was Christmas Eve. Silas was born in August, and so she wasn't that far along. It was, it was Christmas Eve, and we were getting ready for the Christmas Eve services at the church where we were serving at the time. And um, she began to have severe abdominal pain and significant bleeding. So I called the deacon of our church, and I said, I can't be there. You've got to take the services. And they spent, at the church, spent significant time in prayer for us as we went to the emergency room. And we had to wait for hours in the emergency room waiting room, as she was in pain and bleeding. They finally took us back to the back, and they put the sonogram and the other machines that they use, and they searched around, and they searched around, and they said, we're sorry, we can't find a heartbeat. We believe you've lost your child. I remember the pain of hearing those words. You can imagine that this was Christmas Eve. Our OB wasn't open on Christmas Day or the day after. It took us a couple of days to get in to see our OB, and we mourned for days. I remember specifically a moment where we had eaten breakfast, and I was just wiping off the counter, and I just doubled over in pain and in agony, wailing. And Karen came over, and we just held each other and wept. And Eli was too; did didn't know what was going on but was very concerned for us and came over and he was hugging our legs because we had lost our child. And I remember then not knowing whether I should curse God or fall into his arms. Now for us, and this is not true for many, but for us, miracle upon miracles, when we went to the OB a few days later and they put the machine back on, we heard a heartbeat. It's the closest thing that I can imagine to what the joy of being there at the resurrection must have been like. Because we knew the death of our child and then he was alive. This agony, this pain, for for many in this room, didn't end the same way with a heartbeat on the other side of that sonogram a few days later. And for Mary here, She knows the agony of losing her son. And here, in the midst of all this, in the midst of all of God's pain, in the midst of Jesus' anguish, in the midst of he's he's feeling physical pain as a man, he's also got the divine pressure of carrying all the sins that have ever happened and all that ever will in the future on his shoulders as well. The immensity of his suffering that he, while bearing all of that, looks into the eyes of his mother at the foot of the cross, and he says, Behold your son. And he points her to John the disciple. John calls himself throughout his, throughout his gospel the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's just a way of, of being humble and not saying, Oh, it was me. I'm John. I wrote the gospel. And he's talking about me. He, he, he doesn't name himself. He just calls himself the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so he, he gives his mother to his disciple, and he takes her into his house. Do you see the intimate detail of this? With all of the cosmic things that are going on, with, with the, the, the most epic moment of all of human history, and Jesus is concerned with his mother and the pain and what will happen to Mary. There's a few things that we can see from this. One, I have heard people say when I have asked them about praying or whether they've discussed things with God, they've said, you know, I just feel bad sometimes talking to God because with all of the things that he has going on, why does he care what's going on in my life? My things seem so petty to be able to bring them to God. Friends, look at this image of Mary at the foot of the cross. He, he didn't have to work things out for her. He has other things on his mind. And that he cares and is concerned for her and her future and her well-being. And friends, even with all that God has going on, he's concerned about the intimate details of our lives. And to be with us in our hurt, in our pain, and our anguish. Second thing, here's an easy application of this. Be kind to your mom. Really, be kind to your mom. I know we have broken families, and I know that oftentimes that's difficult, and our families are full of sin, but part of our calling as Christians is to love our moms well. Hear me, teenagers. Hear me, teenage daughters in particular, um, who have a special relationship with your moms, right? Part of your role in serving Christ is loving your mom well and respecting her well. And this isn't me as your pastor like wagging his finger at you being like, hey, behave yourself, don't talk like that. What the scripture tells us that, that there's that uh, that one of the ten commandments, there's only ten of them, and one of them is honor your mother and father. And it's the only one, the scripture also points out to us, it's the only one that comes with a promise. All the other ones just say, don't steal, don't covet, don't lie, et cetera. This one says, honor your mother and father, comma, so that it may go well with you. So part of, as a teenager, part of your work as a child, as an adult, part of your work as a Christian is to love your mother well, to seek reconciliation where that's possible, to honor where you can, to bless where you can, because mothers are a particular gift from the Lord in which God participates. As God creates us, he creates us through the co-creator of the mother. Now, fathers, we'll talk about you some other time. Don't get jealous, okay? We're not, you're not in this today. Um, this is just about mothers One, we need to love our mothers well, and it's part of our Christian duty to honor moms well. And moms, part of your role in serving Christ is loving your children well and raising them well in Christ. You don't have to look to be a missionary and go overseas to change the world in order to serve Christ. Look at home and raise your children in the name and the lineage of Christ. There is your powerful ministry that he is calling you to. And just as Jesus sees his mother, so too are you seen in your parenting efforts. And it's hard. Unless your child is Jesus, it's hard. And apparently, even if your child is Jesus, your heart is broken too. So you are seen and you are loved. And those who are not able to have children, the Lord looks particularly upon you as well, and he sees your hurt and your anguish. He is with you in your pain. This is the intimacy of the cross. This is not far away, That the cross and the sacrificed Christ upon it is close to our anguish and our hurt and the details of our everyday life. God is concerned with them. When you anguish over your children, remember that God has been where you are. That Mary anguished too, and God was not absent from her, but was with her in her grief. And let us be astounded at the loving nature of our God. What he does for Mary, in this whole woman behold your son, uh, son behold your mother, what he's doing is that he he is making a public Pronouncement in front of witnesses, which was binding then, uh, informally places his mother under the disciples' care. So, so he is making sure that she is taken care of when her eldest son is, uh, is, is killed and won't be there to be able to physically provide for her. She's a widow at this point, everyone assumes, because we don't hear anything more about Joseph, and so most likely he has died at this point. Uh, and, uh, and, and so she, in the age when women didn't make that much money, was going to be dependent upon others to care for her, and Jesus gives her to the disciple. Now, this is a really important point, because who did Jesus entrust her to? Not even his brothers. We learn in other places, Jesus had brothers. He didn't even entrust her to his brothers. Who did he entrust her to? The church. That's who John represents, is the church. And so, at, at... at a moment of her most vulnerable, God says, how am I going to care for you? I'm going to care for you through, your, through my people. And so, friends, this is, this, is, this is the challenge I would lay out for us in this. Let's be this kind of church. Let's be the church where those who are broken and vulnerable and in pain know the presence of God because we are close. Let us be the kind of people who pick up our cross and follow Christ and step into grief with others and step into hurt with others and step into pain with others and not push out those whom we disagree with or have conflict with but find unity together in the grace of Jesus Christ. Let us be a people who can let those who are hurting and in pain and have been hurt by other people wail in anguish in our midst and they know our presence and our grace. So one point of challenge in this is, will you let other people serve you? Will you let other people into your pain and your grief? And then two, the question is, who are you also serving and loving and caring and being the hands and feet of Jesus and and issuing the words of comfort as he issued them to his mother? The church will care for you. Let's be that place. Friends together. That doesn't mean just the clergy taking good care of people. That doesn't just mean Ashley, who who oversees our pastoral care, doing all the work. That means how do we as the church love each other over the top passionately enough to carry people through their deepest and darkest anguish. When you go through this moment in life, perhaps you have already been through it once or twice before, deep, deep pain in your life. Maybe it hasn't happened to you yet, but it will at some point. Anguish will come to you in this life, I promise you. And you will be tempted to turn and to curse God and to feel that He is absent. And to distance yourself from the church in times of pain and confusion. I pray that these words will come and ring in your ears just like the words of the prophet Simeon did in Mary's ear at this moment. I pray when you feel that, when you feel that tendency to want to distance or to curse God in your pain and confusion, that you will hear that no, that is a lie from the father of lies and that you need to press in to the church. That is the time when you are most vulnerable that you need the church the most. And the time when you are tempted to reject God because you recognize the depth of sin that is around you and in you, and those that have, then the things that have happened to you, those are the times when you need God the most. Hear me now when your ears are open, so that when that time comes, you will reject that temptation to leave and distance and push away. The church will take you in. The church. Was entrusted with the very mother of Jesus. How much more will we be entrusted with you? So, friends, we leave this text then with this this intimate picture of the cross. This is no faraway God. This is no God who is only dealing in theology or concepts. This is a God whose blood drips into the details of our lives. Whose eyes come from the cross itself to peer into our anguish and to step into it with us. Even our darkest, most difficult days. You are not alone. The crucified and risen Christ is with you and his people surround you. Let us know this, God. Let us turn to this God. Let us repent and believe and be healed from our sins. Let us be baptized and enter into the church and then let us be the church in ways that are beyond our imagination. By the power and presence of God, let us be the presence of God to others. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Let us, in the name of Christ, take in those who are hurting. And if that's you today, Know the presence of God and know the friends that are truly around you in this place today. There is hope because the God who is hanging on the cross is still concerned for the details of our lives. Pray with me. Lord, it's easy to sing praise when things are going well. When things hurt, we oftentimes want to run or to curse. Lord, help us be like Mary and fall at the foot of the cross to turn our affections towards you, to realize that in your death we find life. And that you are so compassionate that you are not concerned only with the condition of our souls, but with our health and flourishing as well. Let us turn to you. Let us deeply be a part of the church. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless this church. We pray that you would bless Redeemer, that we would be a place that is that it embodies your compassion, that doesn't run from those who are in pain, but of sacrificial love And at cost to ourselves, let us enter into the pain of others that they may know your closeness and they may know your goodness. Lord, bring healing to our hearts. Bring healing to our souls. Bring us unity in the church as your garment is seamless. And let us be cut to the heart by your tremendous act of love on the cross that we will share that same love and compassion with others. All through the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.